for us. So thanks for allowing us to come and worship with you this morning. And if you have a Bible with you, open up to James. We're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. By the way, we could use some good Texans out in California. So, you know, everybody in my state is heading to Idaho, Tennessee, or Texas. But let's, uh, I'm thinking about reversing the direction. And maybe if some of you want to go out on the front lines, come on, here in the U.S. of A, we're talking about doing a mission trip at home. If you don't want to go to Japan or Haiti, come to California. Come and join us. We would love to have you. We'll put you into good use right away. And uh, it's a great opportunity to be, you know, living uh, in, a, in America today because the gospel is becoming more clearly uh, preached and more clearly rebuffed. And uh, we have an opportunity there in Los Angeles in the Santa Clarita area just to preach the word, love the people, do what we can to reach our neighbors. And uh, it's been a great joy to be there. We've been there almost nine years and things at the church are going really well. We feel really blessed to be there. So thanks again for praying for us and what a joy to, uh, to be with you all this morning. So again, we're in James chapter one. Hopefully you found it by now, verses 13 through 18. The title for the sermon this morning is How to Triumph in Temptation. How to Triumph in Temptation. Let's read this passage and we'll dive into our time together. Starting in verse 13, James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own, he will be brought, of his own, will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Well, dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to read a familiar passage this morning about how sin works and how in our own hearts we have the power only through the gospel, receiving every perfect and, and, and uh, an unchanging gift from above, that we would be saved and that we would have the opportunity to be sanctified. We're praying this morning you would help us to understand a little better how temptation works so that we can fight those temptations and that we could be, be being made holy day by day in our pursuit of the goodness and the greatness of God. So be exalted in our time together this morning. Teach us what you want us to learn so we can apply it and live it out. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I read an article re- recently by, um, by WebMD, and it told the sad story of a young girl named Angie Gibson, now a young lady from North Carolina, who struggled with the temptation to overeat. From time to time, after her mom tucked her into bed at 8 o'clock each night, Angie would lie awake and then listen for the click. It was the sound of her mother's bedroom door finally latching shut as she turned herself in to go to sleep. Angie, who says that she was around age six at the time, knew that for about two precious hours until her father returned from his factory shift at 11.30 p.m. could eat in secret. She would slip out of her bed and began scanning the fridge and cupboards for food that wouldn't be easily missed. She knew that the cream-filled Zinger's snack cakes that her dad liked were off-limits. But often they had enough hot dogs or slices of bologna that one or two wouldn't be noticed. 
Angie would microwave a hot dog and eat it on a piece of bread with mustard. Hillbilly hot dog, her family called it. Other times, she would savor slices of soft white bread dipped in ranch dressing. Angie took care to stay hidden. She sometimes crouched in a corner there in the tiny kitchen so that she wouldn't be easily seen from any of the doorways. Angie's parents worked factory jobs at the local plant. They lived in a trailer and lived on a lot of cheap processed food that they could afford on their minimum wage salaries. They liked to talk about how they gave us Dr. Pepper in our baby bottles and fed us honey buns when we were six months old. And we turned out fine, says Angie who is now 24. By the time she was in the sixth grade, she weighed 240 pounds. By the time she was in the 11th grade, she weighed 340 pounds. Doctors say that Angie Gibson was a victim of hedonic hunger, which is a diagnosis that describes one's preoccupation with the desire to consume foods for the purpose of pleasure and even in the absence of any physical hunger. Hedonic hunger leads to binge eating, and statistics now show that this is the most common eating disorder. About 1 in 28 women and 1 in 50 men have struggled with this at some point in their lives. That's about three times the rate of anorexia or bulimia combined. And I find it interesting that the doctors call it hedonic hunger. The word hedonic is an adjective, and it means of or relating to pleasure. It means pursuing pleasure in a devoted manner. The noun form of the word you're probably more familiar with called hedonism, which is the belief that pleasure or happiness is the highest good and pursuit in one's life. And the Bible calls this being enslaved to the desires of the flesh. It's not truly a problem with your stomach It's a problem with your heart, with your inner man. This is a problem within our souls. You can't blame this on biology or on chemicals. You have to blame it on the depraved soul, which is struggling with ongoing sin. And as Christians, we would describe hedonic hunger not as a disorder or a medical disease, but as a part of our sinful nature. We all have desires. And for the unbeliever, pursuing whatever makes you feel happy is a way of life. And as believers, we want to learn to find our happiness in God, in knowing God, in loving God, in obeying God. And unbelievers often embrace temptation as a part of their identity. And as Christians, we want to embrace our life in Christ as our identity, As a Christian, temptation should not define you, but the triumph of Christ over sin and over death is what defines you. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And this morning, I want us to look at how we can triumph in the midst of any temptation, And as we dive into the book of James this morning, let me just give you a quick overview. I know we're kind of parachuting into this one text this morning. It's probably the first book in the New Testament written down. It's written by James, who was known as the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, James also wrote the book of Jude. And even though James was the Lord's half-brother, most commentaries say that he may not have become a believer until after the resurrection. 
You might remember that James was an elder in the early church. He was the leader of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And history records for us that he was a faithful prayer warrior. There in uh, the historical account of Josephus, he talked about how he had camel knees. He was on his knees a whole lot during his life praying. The epistle of James, in many ways, could be seen as the Proverbs of the New Testament. It has a very practical emphasis, stressing not deep theology so much as godly behavior. And the main point of James, as I see it, is that true faith always results in obedient works. Or you could just simply say, faith works. If you've truly been born again by the grace of God, then it's going to work itself out in your life. And this morning, we're going to see how it's going to work itself out in us overcoming temptation. If you're struggling with temptation this morning, this message is for you. The book starts with verses 1 through 12, that first section here of chapter 1, teaching us the truth about trials. And James is addressing his brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel, who had been somewhat dispersed and who were facing persecution. And verses 1 through 12 were written to tell us there's a truth to the trials that we face in life. And the truth is this, God brings tests or trials into your life, not to harm you, but to make you stronger. You know, when you go through school, teachers give you tests. Why does a teacher give you a test? To harm you? To shame you? To make you feel bad for yourself? Why do teachers give tests? If you're a teacher in here this morning, you know you give tests because you want your students to learn, right? You want to make them better intimately engrossed in the material that you're teaching, and giving them a test is a way to hold them accountable to do that. And, And as an athlete, you work out, right, to get stronger, You work out, it can be difficult, but it's something that you work through in order that you can get stronger and hopefully perform better. And we're just saying this morning that the truth is trials are something that we go through every day, and we know from the Word of God, look back at verses 2 through 4, that when we face these trials, we're to count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let the steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect complete, lacking in nothing. And then if you look at verse 5, it says, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. So we understand in the first part of James here, God's goal is for us to stand firm, to endure, to grow as a result of our trials. And in verse 12, wraps up this first section, the truth about trials, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised for those who love him. Now, the reason I went through verses 1 through 12 a little bit is I want you to compare that with verses 13 through 18, because this morning I'm going to ask you the question, what is the difference between a trial and a temptation? What's the difference between a test or a trial and a temptation? Because in the original language, in the Greek, it's the same word. The same word that's used in verses 1 through 12 is the same word that's used and described and and translated as temptation in verses 13 through 18. We're talking about, again, the same word. So how do you know whether or not the word should be translated as a test or a trial, which can have a very positive connotation, or whether or not the word should be translated as a temptation, which typically has a very negative connotation. How do you know to translate it in your life? 
when you're facing something, is this a test from God or is this a temptation? And the answer, according to at least our text this morning, is you have to know the context of how the scripture, how the words are used in this passage. And in this passage, you can tell it by the part of speech, by a part of speech. When it's translated as trial, verses 1 through 12, it's in the part of the speech of a noun. But when it's translated as a temptation or being tempted as a participle there, it's translated there as a verb. Trial is a noun in this passage, 1 through 18 or 19, and and a verb, the verb is going to be translated as temptation. So here's the main difference, if I can say it this way, between a trial and a temptation. God sends trials your way, but he will never send you a temptation. God may choose to arrange trials to complete you, but he will never arrange a temptation to destroy you. God may be the author of the trial, but he is never the agent of the temptation. God never appoints temptation in our lives. He only allows it. And from God's perspective, trials exist to make us stronger, but from the devil's perspective, temptation exists to make us weaker. What's the difference, you ask, between a trial and temptation? Well, to some degree, that depends on you. That depends on how you handle the crossroads in your life. If you handle it as a trial with God's strength and with his power, you could look back and say, that was a really difficult trial, but by God's grace, he's made my faith stronger. Again, reference verses two through four. But if you face something in your life and it begins to conquer you and you become enslaved to that temptation, then in many ways you can think of it a little bit more as a temptation, which is attempting to lead to your demise. If God had his way in you, every trial would result in strengthening you. While if the devil had his way in you, every temptation would lead to your demise. Well, today, I want to let you know how you can triumph in your temptations. And so let me give you three criteria. You're like, is he ever going to get to this outline with all these blanks that we're supposed to be filling in? That's what we're doing right now, okay? Three triumphs, uh, three ways, three criteria to overcome temptation in your life. You ready? Number one, recognize the source of the temptation, verses 13 and 14. And here's your first blank if you're taking notes this morning. Your temptation does not come from God. Your temptation does not come from God. Again, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so no one can say when they're tempted that somehow God's tempting me. Remember, God tests you, but God does not tempt you, according to verse 13. God does not try to trick you. God never tries to get you to fail. God never tries to deceive you. In fact, your next blank says there, number one, God is not to be blamed. He is not to be blamed. You can't blame God for the difficulties, the temptation specifically that you're facing in your life. That's always our tendency, isn't it? When we're going through a really tough time, well, it's really not my fault. You see, it's not really me, it's everything that's happened to me. And this started way back with the fall in the garden Right in Genesis 3, 11, when God asked uh, Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And what did he say? Uh, the man said, the woman, this, is, this has been going on for a long time, guys. It's that woman, Lord, 
And then he says that you gave me. So he actually blame shifts twice. It's bad enough for him to blame it on his wife, right? It's that woman, and then he blames it on who? On God. It's that woman that you gave me. That's why I fell into this sin. And we understand that you can never blame shift. Guys, I'm just here to tell you today, your wife is always right. Okay, just go ahead and put that in the bank in your head. My wife is always right, and it'll help a whole lot with your ongoing marriage, right? You're, oh, you're right, honey, you're right. Now, you're not, you, get, you get what I'm saying. Our wives are blessings and gifts from God, but the idea here is that you can't blame your sin on your wife. Your wife can't blame her sin on the husband. You can't blame it if you're a child in here this morning. They can't blame it on another, another child that you took my toy, right? You took my toy, so that's why I hit you, right? You, you can't blame it on anything. I mean, we're getting to the age now uh, where uh, Lisa and I are starting to share occasionally some of our clothes with our oldest two kids sitting over there somewhere. And it's like, we got to be careful, right? You can't be like, hey, you took my shirt. Any, any uh, sibling struggle with this? Hey, that's, those are my jeans. Hey, what are you doing? You, you, you know, and you start to get angry and you feel like you're justified. In fact, the way we think of this is like, you made me mad. That's what we like to say, right? Well, you made me mad when you did and you fill in the blank. And we had to be reminded this morning that nobody has the power to make you mad. It's a choice that you make in that moment to either respond to the trial and honor God or to succumb to the temptation and to lash out to them in a sinful way. You can't blame God this morning. That's the point we're trying to make. You can't blame God this morning. You can't blame God for your physical features. I'm too short. I always wanted to be at least 6'1". And here I am at a whopping 5'8". I've learned to accept that over the years. It's all right, right? You can't blame God for your physical features. You can't blame God for being too short, too tall, too tiny, too clumsy, too nerdy. Okay, that might be partly your fault if you're too nerdy. All right, just a little bit in there on that one. But you know what? You got to ask God to help you accept who you are, and you can't blame any of your struggles, any of your sinful feelings on God. That's my problem. He, he, he doesn't... He doesn't cause us to sin, that's when we fall into that trap, but we oftentimes just tend to be like, well, I'm blaming it on God. I mean, did you hear about the guy who was on a diet and he drove around the donut store praying that if God wanted him to buy a donut, that he would open up a parking place? And did you know after seven times driving around the store, a place finally opened up? And so the guy goes on, right, blaming God on his eating problem. And we understand here that God is never to be blamed, right? He's never to be blamed. He's always to be trusted. He's always bringing about what he's bringing about for his glory and for your good, like what we sang about this morning. He's sovereign over us. He doesn't make any mistakes. He doesn't forget. You don't have to remind him. He is who he is. Number two, not only do we read here that God does not tempt us, so he's not to be blamed, but number two, God cannot be tempted. He himself is not tempted. This is part of his character there in the middle of verse 18, uh, that he's, he, he cannot be tempted with evil. It, it's only here, this phrase, cannot be tempted, is only used here in the New Testament. It carries the idea of being untemptable. That's even a word, to be without the capacity of temptation. It is the same as being indivincible uh, to all evil. Uh, in other words, since God does not have a sinful nature, sin and temptation are completely foreign to him. The two are mutually exclusive in the most complete and the most profound sense. God and evil exist 
in two different realms, at, and they never meet, at least not in the sense of mixing with his nature. They never meet. It never gets under his skin, never gets into his character, into his attributes. He is aware of evil, but he is untouched by evil. Like a sunbeam shining on a dumpster is untouched by the trash. That's how God is. He sees, he's aware, but he's unaffected by evil. This doctrine is called the impassibility of God. And it's different than the idea of Greek mythology where you have Zeus and Apollos and Thor and they all have these mighty superpowers, but they all have this one little flaw somewhere in their character that begins to pull them down. But with God, you need to know this morning, there is no deficiency. There is no vice. There is no sin with God. Isaiah 6, 3, and one uh, called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That's the character of God. You know that. 1 Peter 1.16, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Habakkuk 1.13, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Now, you may be asking at this point, well, okay, I get what you're saying. I know that God is holy, and I know that from this verse, I can't argue with you, God cannot be tempted, but wasn't Jesus tempted? Wasn't he tempted? And the answer would be like, well, yes. Matthew 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus was tempted, but he was not tempted by God. According to the passage in Matthew 4, 1, he was tempted by the devil. We understand Hebrews 2, 18, for because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who were being tempted. For we do not have a high priest, Hebrews 4.15, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we know that God the Father chose to send God the Son into the world so that he could serve as our atoning sacrifice to die in our place and also to be our perfect example to show us how we are to live our lives. And even though Jesus was tempted, it's a little bit different than when you and I are tempted because Jesus doesn't have a sinful nature. Jesus does have two natures. He has a human nature and a divine nature, what we call the hypostatic union, but nothing in his human nature was attracted to sin. In, in the sense there, he's tempted genuinely, and yet there's nothing carnal in him that would somehow desire to do something that would be contrary to who he truly was, which was also fully God. We call this, theologians call this, the impeccability of Christ, that he was not able to sin. Well, let me get back to our sermon if we can. God is not to be blamed. God cannot be tempted. And number three, God cannot tempt you. God cannot tempt you. It is against God's nature. Again, the end of verse 13, and he himself tempts no one. It's against God's nature to tempt you. To be tempted by evil is against God's nature to tempt others with evil. And so how about the Lord's Prayer? You might be asking, Matthew 6, 13, and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I would say that Jesus encourages us to pray this way and so he's encouraging us, and the, the encouragement is that God would not lead us to temptation into a testing of our faith, or we should say uh, in a tempting of our faith, because our, our immaturity and our weaknesses could become unbearable. 
So God does not lead us into temptation. You may be thinking even about Job. Job chapter 1, as you know, when the sons of God came to present themselves before God, and Satan also came among them, and the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered to the Lord from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch forth, Satan says to God, stretch forth your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Again, just please understand why God may be sovereign over all things. He is not the agent of temptation itself. That is the devil's job in some regards. At some points, it is the devil tempting us. God was not tempting Job. He was testing Job. Your temptation does not come from God. Right? Let's move on. B in your outline. Your temptation comes from within. It comes from within. Verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Your temptation does not come from God. It comes from within your own heart. When you're tempted, that temptation is from within you. It's Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 18 through 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the, what? From the heart, right? So we know it all starts down deep in our heart, for from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And so even if you've been saved this morning and you're a born-again Christian, there are still remnants of this sinful nature that still, to some degree, affect us until our glorification, your next blank says that you are lured. You were lured there in verse 14 again, but each person is tempted when he is lured. This, this could also be translated as that you were carried away. This word lure has the meaning of dragging away as if compelled by an inner desire. It is often used as a hunting term for reference to a baited trap designed to lure an unsuspecting animal, a, a mouse trap is a lure. A couple of years ago, we had some field mice having their way in our backyard, and so Big Daddy, that's me, decided to take care of it. So we got some, uh, some mechanized uh, mouse traps and baited them, and man, we had a grand time, me and the boys, killing, I don't know, four or five field mice all within one week. We were after those suckers, luring them in. That's a fun memory for us. And that's what sin works, right? It, it, it lures you in. Or another word, your next blank is you are enticed. You are enticed there in verse 14. Again, this word was commonly used as a fishing term to refer to bait. And the purpose of bait, for you fishermen out there, know that it's to catch fish. You also have lures that you use, right, in the water in order to tantalize and to tempt fish. And so in that sense, you're acting like the devil. You're giving the fish a temptation, all right? Instead of a trial, you're trying to tempt them. That's okay, all right? We're called to kill and eat animals. Praise God, I can say that in California without getting anybody pushing back on me. 
Sometimes, I mean, I can say it in Texas, excuse me, without having anybody push back. I mean, sometimes in California, you know, they like their, their, their vegetables and their fruit and their nuts. And uh, sometimes this is good to get some good Texas barbecue, isn't it? Doesn't that just do the soul good? It does. It does my soul good. So, uh, so we got to understand here, though, that what's going on is animals and fish are successfully lured to traps and hooks because the bait is too attractive for them to resist. It looks good. It smells good. It feels good. Turn with me, if you will, to Proverbs 7. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about with the enticement and the lure of this young man who's walking down the wrong path by the wrong house. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 6, for at the window of my house I have looked through my lattice, and here I see among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man lacking in sense. Proverbs 7, verse 8, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of the night, in darkness. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay home. Now in the street, now in the market, and in every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Well, every guy here today knows what that might look like. You might not literally be walking down the neighborhood and have some lady throw herself at you like that, but we understand the temptation is very real, and the temptation is constant in the sense of the internet or movies or people maybe that you work with and have relationships with where constantly women are, are tempted as well, but we just understand that as men, it's a reg, more regular, more common temptation for guys, and we've got to be on guard, right? We've got to be fighting, and we've got to understand that we're just simply in that moment being lured, being lured to look, being lured to click, being enticed to watch and to think about where, where that may go. And when that's happening, you, don't, you need to understand your next blank is that what you're really having at this point is you're having evil desires. You have evil desires. We know that the Bible teaches that the Christian has three enemies that we fight. We fight against the flesh, the world, and the devil. In the flesh, we understand that from Romans 7, 14, that the things that you want to do, you don't do, and the things that you don't do, that you do. There's this battle back and forth in Romans 7. We also face uh, the devil. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone whom he may devour. And then we also have the battle of the world. 1 John 2, 15 and 16, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so when we think about, again, we're facing temptation, sometimes you might be asking, well, is that the flesh? Is that the world? Or is that the devil? And the answer is, sometimes you don't know. And the good news is, you don't have to know. 
You don't have to discern, well, wait a second, if this one's really bad, it must be the devil. And if this one's just more sensual, then maybe it's the world. Or wait a second, it's not my flesh. You follow what I'm saying? There's three enemies that we fight, and we fight them all the same way. We fight them through the gospel. We fight them through the scripture being meditated on and applied in our hearts, and that's kind of what we're getting to here with the rest of this sermon. Let's move on then and talk about that. The second criteria for overcoming temptation is resisting the steps of temptation. So before we get to the full-blown battle, we got to understand the steps, verses 15 and 16, where we read, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And so we read here that James now is moving away from the illustrations of hunting and fishing. Those are good Texas illustrations, aren't they? And now he's talking about the desire and how that desire gives birth to sin. So here we have four steps of how temptation works in your life. Number one, the first step is desire. You see it there in verse 15, then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. Desire here would be more than a feeling. It is this innate, natural yearning of the heart. You could say it's a feeling and an emotion, but it's so deep, it's like a drive in you. In a sense, this word here, epithumia, that you've probably heard before, it means a strong desire, a craving, is often translated as lust. And we know that emotions are part of who we are, but they're not all good. They must be filtered through a life of faith and obedience. In fact, Jesus says in Mark 4, 19, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Uh, God warned Cain about these desires. He says to him and Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, right before Cain killed Abel, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? And if you remember the context there, Cain could have said, well, you made me angry because you accepted Abel's sacrifice and you didn't accept my sacrifice, so I'm justified in my anger, whereas in fact, Cain was self-righteous and he was blaming God for his own sinful anger. And so the Lord approached him and says, hey, why are you angry? If you do well, God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the, at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That's what God told Cain. And yet we know Cain did not heed the Lord's wisdom, and he went on to kill Abel with the very first homicide. But what we're learning here is that most of the desires that most of us have, most of them are, you could say, natural. The desire to eat, the desire to drink, or to sleep, or to enjoy life, or to be loved. There's nothing wrong with desires if you stop there and thank God for the desire and keep the desire in check and realize that God is ultimately your greatest desire and you wait on the Lord to fulfill your God-given desires in God's way and in God's time, then all is well. So you got to be careful when that desire starts to really start roaring in your heart to see where is this going. And this would be the second step, which would be in your outline, is deception. It goes from desire to deception. The desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. So please note, the first part of verse 15, it doesn't say the desire in and of itself is a sin. It says that when it has conceived, 
it gives birth to sin. So there is a progression from moving from the desire to the deception. The word deceived means to mislead. It means to go astray. It can even mean to wander about aimlessly. And it's often used in the context with false teachers, and Jesus warned us about this in the Olivet Discourse, don't let others lead you astray, Matthew 24, 4. Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets try to lead you astray. Matthew 24, 24, many people do wonders and signs as if to lead astray even the elect. And so we understand that that people are trying, that these desires begin to lead us astray. This is all of a warning. Don't, the Bible's saying, don't think of desire as being a good and wholesome desire if it begins to be conceived to the point of sin. At that point, it becomes an enemy within, an unwelcome desire, a deadly toxin that needs to be expelled. And the problem is, if the desire is too strong, Or if you have become impatient or you are looking to be fulfilled outside of God's way and God's time, in that moment, that natural desire meets an ungodly temptation, then sin is conceived. And at this point, you have condemned yourself. Let me explain. Eating food is normal, but when your desire to eat becomes too great, gluttony, are too small, anorexia, then that desire then becomes sin. Sleeping is normal, but when the desire to sleep outweighs your other responsibilities and someone truly became a sluggard, as the Bible talks about, then that would be a sin. When you're wanting to have someone love you, that's normal, right? But when the desire leads to disobeying your parents or doing relationships in an ungodly way, The Bible says that's sin. Admiring a woman's beauty is normal. But when the desires lead you to move from innocent admiration to guilty mental adultery, well, that is sin. And so where is the line between desire and deception? That line lies somewhere in your own heart, in your own conscience. The line is when you begin to condone what God condemns. And when you affirm what God says to avoid, and when you embrace what God says you are to empty yourself and your mind of. So at this point, we're saying that A, the desire in and of itself is not sinful. B, I mean, it can be sinful. It may not be sinful. Depends if it aligns with scripture or not. But by you get t- time you get to B, where you're deceived, you've now, it's conceived in your heart. Again, it's taking that second look And it's beginning to move down in your heart a purposeful pursuit of sinful pleasure. And then that leads to outright disobedience. Your next blank there, disobedience in verse 15 there at the very end. When sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Uh, The desire when it is conceived gives you birth. When sin is fully grown, again, brings forth death. So now we're talking about emotion, mind, and now will, your will. This is when you willfully know and you act upon this sin. It it has already been committed in your heart, and now you're ready to commit it in real time and in real action. And if you're at this point, I just want to remind you, it's still not too late to stop. So many people struggle, as we all struggle with sin, and you're like, well, I'm thinking about it. I might as well just do it. I'm thinking about saying this to her. I'm just going to say it. And it's like, look, at any point in this progression, you can say, you know what? I'm stopping right here. 
with God's help and by His grace, I can be reminded of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He would not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Let's move on. Step number four would be death. We're moving now to full-blown death. Again, the end of verse 15, it brings forth death. We understand that, right? That's what sin does. All of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23 says, and the wages of sin is death. And as a believer, if you are a believer, sin still challenges you, even though you're born again and you're not going to face ultimate death because you have eternal life. But as a believer, when you sin, it kills your joy. And when it kills your joy, you don't feel like loving and obeying God. And the reason we have so many Christians struggling with so many things is because they're caught in besetting and ongoing sin. And then they're struggling with this passion to love Christ and to serve Christ and to be filled with this joy because every night they're putting their head on the pillow thinking like, man, I'm not who I should be. And again, in the song that we sang, we're not saying that doing something makes it right. The gospel makes it right through repentance and faith. But then as a believer, you want to lean into gospel implications of living out that life for the Lord so that you can be used by him to do incredible things. But in order to do that, at times you have to overcome sin. I mean, can I just share with you a little bit of my own testimony? God saved me when I was about eight years old in a Christian home in Georgia. When I was in high school, I struggled with various temptations like all people do. And when I was in college, I realized I got a choice to make. All of my friends are going the way of the world. Alcohol, girls, pursuing whatever, partying, and I'm like hanging on tight because I know I'm not supposed to do that, but I'm struggling in my heart to like, okay, what am I going to do? Because this friend just fell, this friend just fell, this just friend just fell, kids out of my youth group, kids out of our college Bible study, and I'm like, oh man, this is like a hard battle here, and I'm just like, God, help me. I need your help, and at that moment, my life was consumed with school and sports and uh, extracurricular activities, not in any gross sound, but just kind of like teetering a little. And then one day I just realized, you know what? My time in the Word is lame. This guy came and did a Bible study at, at a place where I was uh, attending school. And I just felt so convicted that I wasn't spending time in God's Word like I needed to. And I felt like on this certain night, I felt like it was as if God was revealing my own heart, Adam, you have a choice to make. You can keep pursuing your sin and just kind of flirting with the devil, if you will, flirting with these temptations, or you can at this moment decide that you need to live all of your life, all of your days, all of yourself to me, and you got a choice to make because you can't keep dabbling in this kind of behavior without this leading to the bad path. And I just remember in that moment, I was just broken. I was like, oh my word, how did I get to this place where I'm even struggling to this degree? And I just remember calling out to God, just like, God, I need you. I just pray that you would forgive me for the ways I've been compromising and the ways I've been flirting around with the, with the, with the temptation. And I just need freedom. And I remember it so clearly because it was as if something just kind of broke in me. Just kind of like, all right, I, I, I confess that. I need to get in the word. 
I need to get in prayer. I need to be meditating and memorizing the scripture. And I remember the next day, it was was, was as if something completely changed. I got up, got in the word, and I just started studying the scripture, praying for God to help me live for him. I remember going up to my parents and confessing a bunch of stuff I'd done behind their backs. Like, hey, mom, dad, I need to talk to you right now. This is going on. This is going on. This is going on. And my mom was like, you're grounded for a year. You know? <laughs> and my dad was like, you know, hey, son, we're really disappointed to hear you say all these things. But we're so thankful that God has got a hold of your heart and demonstrated that he's better than anything this world has to offer. Your mom and I want to join you in praying for you. And we could use a little shot in the arm in our own quiet times. Why don't we read through the Bible together? And it was just this significant change. I don't, I don't know why I'm telling you all this other than to just say, we all are at phases of our life where it's like we need to be woken up because sin starts to creep in just a little, a little bit more, and a little bit more. And before you know it, your life is ruined. And you're in the midst of an affair, which the Bible calls adultery. You're in the midst of some situation and people in the church just need to wake up. Because I'm just convinced that too many times we come in and we're like, oh, that's a great sermon and that was good and I learned this and I learned that. And it's like, well, what about you this morning? Where are you at with God? Does God have your heart? We've got to submit ourselves to him, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This leads us to number three, and I know we're over time, so let me just give you this, and you can look through it a little bit on your own, but remember the solution to your temptation, verses 17 and 18, every good and perfect gift is from above. It's almost like God saying, you don't need it. All of the stuff that you're tempted with and that you're lured to and you're enticed to, and you're like, oh, I don't want a little bit of this, and I want a little bit of that. God's like reminding us in verse 17, he said, hey, Every good and perfect gift is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so what we're seeing here in verse 17, let's just consider God's attributes. That's your next blank. Consider God's attributes. That's what verse 17 is talking about. Take your mind off of the things that you're being tempted with and put your mind on God. Get in the Word. And if you try to do it on your own, you just can't do it. You know, you can't just grit your teeth and, and, and say, I'm going to change. I'm going to change. I'm going to change. It'll be different next time. You know, that's like someone telling you, stop thinking about pink elephants. Stop thinking about pink elephants. Stop thinking about pink elephants. What are you thinking about right now? Pink elephants. All right, so, I mean, the idea is it's taking your mind off of, this is Ephesians 4, you can jot this down, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, that you stop and put off sinful habits. And then verse 23 says, and you're renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then verse 24 is, and then you put on God's righteousness. You put off, you become renewed. And the only way to become renewed in the spirit of your mind is to get in the word, and have your mind and your heart washed with the water of the word. And then you put on the right holy habits. And part of that is just focusing on, on God's attributes. Number one, God is caring He's caring every good and perfect gift. Number two, God is creator. Verse 17, again, that he's the father of lights. Number three, God is constant. Again, there's no shifting shadows. He doesn't move. He doesn't get moody. His promises are never broken. 
His love never fails. He offers you something better than this world could ever offer you because the world keeps moving the finish line to get that same amount of satisfaction. Now you got to do this, and now you got to do that, and now you got to do this. And the God's Word says, no, no, God's got everything that you need. He's the creator of all, and He satisfies you with His love. And the idea here is that we've got to meditate on God, right? We've got to meditate on God, come to Him, love Him, obey Him, serve Him with all that we are. He's the Creator, and He's constant. And then your next blank says, consider God's affection. Verse 18, He loves you, right? Of, of the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits to His creatures, right? Of, of His own, that's us. So we consider His affection. Number one, He exercises His will in you, again, the first part of verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth. So there's a little bit of sovereign grace going on in this verse. Don't you know we love the doctrine of sovereign grace because you couldn't do it on your own. It's not your will, ultimately. It's God's will. It's not the fact that you love him. It's the fact that he first loved you. And you can reference Ephesians 2 there. You were dead, but he made you alive together with Christ. So we're talking about the way that this all changes is, is, is to focus on God's affection. He exercises his will in you. Number two, he regenerates you through his word. There in the middle of 18 again, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that has something to do with your salvation, that he regenerated you. And then we can look at number three there. He awards you with the status of first fruits. You, dear Christian, no matter where you are in your walk with God, you're considered to be a first fruit of his creatures. You're more important than animals. You're more important than anything that he's ever created because you're created in his image for his glory. And he loves you. And he set his affection upon you. And he's transformed you when he saved you. And now he's reminding us as we live our Christian life, you know what, I need to be reminded of that. And I've been slipping in certain areas of my life. And the truth is, if you're here this morning, you're not a first fruit if you're not in Christ. You're here this morning, you've been raised in the church and you've been dabbling with the devil. You've been struggling with various things in your life. It might be that you're not truly saved. So this morning, we would be amiss not to invite you into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe the reason you've never had victory over that sin is that you don't know Christ. So if you're here this morning, I'm inviting you out of a world of darkness, out of a world of shame, out of a world of defeat and enslavement to sin. And I'm just reminding you this morning that God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. You could have been raised in the church. You could be married to what you thought was a Christian for years, and you may not even know the Lord. I'm just inviting you just to look. Say, hey, you know what? What's going on in my heart? Do I know Christ? Have I truly repented? Have I been regenerated all by grace through faith? Or maybe you're here this morning, and you're saying, you know what? I, I believe I'm a Christian. I know and understand the gospel. I have tasted and seen the goodness of God. But you know what? I'm at a dry spell right now in my life. I'm in an area of my life where I am not a fighter. I'm not a fighter anymore. I have given in time and a time and time again, and I've gotten lazy, and I've gotten gluttonous, and I've just given in to my sin, and I've just been accepting it because everybody does it. And I've just been accepting it because I've been fighting so hard for so long and I keep losing the battle. I think I'm just going to give up on it. 
And I'm just telling you this morning, if that's you, God loves you and he cares for you and he will draw you out, but it takes confession of your sin. And it takes a willingness to talk to your mom and your dad, to talk to your husband or your wife, to talk to your grow group leader or your pastor or your elder and say, hey, Ken, hey, Chris, hey, Mike, I need to talk to somebody about stuff going on in my life. I came to church this morning. I didn't expect, but all of a sudden the word was opened up and I realized I've been lured in. I've been enticed. And this morning, that's the hardest step you'll ever make is to say, if God's bearing down on you at this moment by his love, the hardest decision you'll ever make is like, you know what, I'm gonna gonna go confess that right now to the Lord and to somebody who I know loves me enough to forgive me and to hold me accountable and to help me to live for him. Ask yourself, this take home part of the message, ask yourself, what desires lead me into temptation? Are you struggling this morning? What are those desires that are leading you into temptation? Number two, ask God, will you help me not to be deceived, but to look to you. Don't be deceived anymore. My goodness, we are to be children of the light, walking in the light. Come out, don't be deceived anymore. Ask others, will you help me grow? Will you help me grow into the word of truth? I wanna have a life that's pure and holy. I know I won't be perfect until glorification, but I wanna live a life with a trajectory where that curve is going in the right direction. Let me ask you again this morning, Will it be a test for you or will it be a temptation? And my answer to that was, well, that depends upon you. If you pass the test and you're strengthened and you grow under the trial, then you consider it a trial or a test. But if you're giving in and you're falling into temptation, then that only leads to death. Praise God that he gives us life through Christ. Again, after we sing this last song, I'm sure Pastor Ken may encourage you further. If not, make sure that you don't go, let the sun go down on this day before you have some serious conversations with God and with those who love you. And we're all here to help you because we're going through it too. Nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm struggling. I'm fighting. That's just the Christian life. But we want to fight together as we hold on to Jesus. And let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of just getting into your word, seeing the power of James, the scriptures that are inspired by the Holy Spirit, that are spoken to us this morning. And I pray, God, that you would just help us to be real today. We're tired. We are tired of playing church. We want to be the true church, those who've been bought with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ by the blood that was shed so that we could have new life. And I just pray, God, for those of us here this morning that are just struggling, ongoing battle. God, we know that it's tough, Lord, but we know that there is triumph through Christ. And as we understand the battle that we're facing and we fix our eyes on your attributes and on your affection, thank you that you deliver us through Christ to fill us with the joy of the Lord that would be our strength this day and forevermore. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.